It's Wednesday, February 24th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Clay Bruning. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Hey, Chris. Of course. Happy to be here. And uh, how you doing? I'm doing all right. We've got earnings for the great reopening. We've got home improvement. We're going to start today with the war on cash. Square's fourth quarter profits and revenue came in solidly higher than expected. Shares of Square, though, are down 7% this morning because growth is slowing. There's always a lot to get to with Square. So when you look at all the numbers, tell me what stood out to you. Yeah, for, for me, I really focus when I think of Square on really their burgeoning business, which, you know, is the Cash App. And it's funny, you mentioned the war on cash and they have this kind of conveniently named Cash App. Um, so it was really some of the numbers that the Cash App, um, you know, drew in the quarter and for that matter, the fiscal year. You know, one of them is 162% increase year over year in gross profit of the Cash App. Um, you know, a lot of that is being fueled. Um, by new users uh, and specifically um, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. So I think one number is that in uh, throughout the entire 2020 fiscal year, over 3 million people transacted Bitcoin uh, in some regard, which was a 250% increase in volume compared to fiscal year 19. Uh, and then they also even gave some, uh, gave some information on January of 2021's figure um, with over 1 million new buyers of Bitcoin. Um, so really just interesting kind of figures throughout the entire report, but um, kind of the, the Bitcoin being such an important part of that cash app is what really stood out to me. Yeah, and that was certainly part of the headline around Square. Is Square announcing it had purchased $170 million worth of Bitcoin during the quarter. So cash app is Square's version of Venmo. Um, it's interesting to see the reaction from the stock because, on the one hand, this is a stock. You even factoring in the drop today, this stock is up almost two hundred percent in the past year. So I understand, uh, particularly traders on Wall Street with a shorter term mentality, saying, "All right, it's been a good year. Let's let's take a little money off the table." That sort of thing. Uh, on the other hand. Um, I don't know. The, the overall market cap of Square is just over $100 billion. It seems like a business with a lot of room to run. And um, I was listening to some of the comments uh, the CFO made around what they are seeing at Square in terms of how sticky the Cash App is in terms of the other parts of Square's business, how it's this thing that's sort of bringing people in. And once they're in the Square ecosystem, they they start trying other parts of the business. So I don't know. Like when you look at, I I get the PE ratio is you know somewhere north of five hundred. But when you when you look at everything that Square has going on, do you look at today as a buying opportunity for people who maybe had Square on their watch list and and thought, well, okay, it's it's seven percent cheaper than it was yesterday. Yeah, and I, actually, I was looking at you know over the last couple of weeks how it's performed, and you know through last week year to date, I think it was up something like um, you know twenty seven percent, and then you have over the last couple of days you know ten percent or so pullback, um, and these are kind of always the days as as a long term investor that I look for. You know, you have a business that's you know in my opinion burgeoning, having um, fiscal year revenue grow over a hundred percent. Granted, excluding Bitcoin, that's only about fifteen or twenty percent. Um, but you know, it, 
as a long-term investor, I, I do think this is an opportunity. I'm not personally a, a shareholder of Square, but it's a fascinating business um, to me. And you know, we've seen so much traction in really their largest growing business in terms of Bitcoin transaction, cryptocurrency, uh, and things like that, which you know, really doesn't seem to be dying. Uh, you know, we had the craze three or four years ago now, and you know, it's all of a sudden had a, a two-year hiatus, and it, it's kind of right back in the thick of things. Um, you know, which Square is really benefiting um, from. So, you know, I think if you're a long-term investor willing to hold for a couple of years and not too worried about, you know, a lot of volatility, which Square has realized and probably will continue to experience over the coming months, over the coming quarters, over the coming years. Um, I, I think this is, you know, an opportunity to, you know, dip your feet in or maybe increase your position a little bit. Lowe's fourth quarter report was similar to Home Depot's yesterday in that profits and revenue were higher than expected. Same store sales were up 28%, which was very impressive. But just like yesterday with Home Depot, shares of Lowe's are selling off a little bit. Is this about guidance? Yeah, I mean, I never put too too much um, weight on guidance. You know, I I, I, I I was digging through some of the numbers, the past performance, and to me, this is kind of a classic case of um, you know a company really kind of getting getting overheated before the earnings. You know, uh, Lowe's is not your square. You know, it's not going to go up 15 percent really any day based off earnings or off of news. And year to date, through the end of last week, it was up over ten percent, almost eleven percent on the year, which. In a you know in a month and a half as a low share as someone who who might own lows like you, you'd be ecstatic with that considering the yield and the buybacks that they're doing, so to me this is just you know kind of a classic case of getting a little overheating into earnings and having that kind of profit taking and selling off or trimming the position. So um, you know nothing in my opinion to be too too worried about if you were a shareholder. So just to clarify, when you say you weren't too focused on the guidance, is that because? you think that the underlying business is strong or do you think that they might be sandbagging a little bit in their guidance which you know i've said repeatedly there's there's no incentive to puffing up your guidance <laughs> like to me that's yeah. a situation where under promise over deliver is the way to go all the time yeah exactly and if you know if i were management in this scenario you know why would you try to have aggressive guidance you just had realistically a historic year you know covid has produced all these tailwinds for your business um and then you think about um single family homes in in terms of inventory is at the lowest we've seen in over 20 years you know i think lowe's is going to be just fine i think you know why, why, like you said why would you be aggressive in a situation like this when you've had such a stellar year um so you know i i wouldn't put too much weight into the guidance i think they're probably trying to be conservative um and you know, I expect them to have you know pretty pretty substantial and stellar year again. It's interesting because uh, I think it was the chief financial officer at Lowe's who was sort of running through some of the numbers and going through similar to weather forecasts. Um, you know, in the winter where it's sort of like, well, here's the snow forecast, and then we've got the boom forecast and the bust, you know, that sure. sort of thing. Is similar type of forecasting out of Lowe's, and even though. Uh, in all three of these scenarios, they're expecting the year-over-year -year numbers to be lower because, as you said, 2020 was such a monster year. In each case, they expect their operating margins to improve, which I find fascinating that, that they could have just from a, a business standpoint and from a stock perspective. I mean, Lowe's could have a 2021 where the shares are basically flat, 
but the underlying business could emerge a year from now so much stronger that it really sets them up for longer term success. Yeah, and I say it's a great point you you bring up, and I'm glad you, you did bring it up. And I, I'll kind of go back to Home Depot, and I think these are very very comparable businesses. You know, I view both of the companies as essentially substitutes. If um, you know Lowe's doesn't have something, just because Lowe's is closer to my house, you know, then I'll drive over to Home Depot to check it out. Um, you know, Home Depot does have I think three or four hundred more stores than them, and um, you know, substantially more revenues. But on the other side of the spectrum, Lowe's is outgrowing in terms of revenue growth. Home Depot, which of course you know presents the possibility of having in, in, in improving operating leverage, um, and you know that, that's impressive all around. And, and another number that kind of stood out to me for Lowe's was, um, you know, again as you could probably imagine with with COVID kind of raging and lockdowns throughout the country and the world for that matter, is they had massive growth in their online business with I think over 120 percent growth. Uh, year over year, and you know, as an investor, you might you say, you know, is this sustainable in a post-COVID world? But in my mind, I think most of 2021 is going to still be, to an extent, a, a COVID world um, with some slowdowns and distribution of the vaccine and whatnot. Um, and then I, I would also say, you know, over time, I think Lowe's will kind of grow into the valuation that Home Depot has. I think. Um, Lowe's is a little bit behind in terms of all their margins compared to Home Depot in terms of um, you know gross margin, EBIT margin, and then you know net margin. So over time, you know, it might not be 2021, but you know, it might continue to uh, kind of converge to Home Depot in 2021 and, and beyond. So uh, kind of encouraging results and uh, kind of guidance in, in that regard. The fourth quarter results from Six Flags were basically the opposite of what we've talked about so far. The theme park operator lost more money than expected in the fourth quarter. Spending per guest was higher than expected. So naturally, shares of Six Flags are up this morning and hitting a 52-week high. This, this, is the, this is part of the great reopening thesis that we saw earlier in the week out of Deutsche Bank, right? This is the whole, these are the stocks that are poised to do well because of pent-up demand and when the world reopens this summer. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be, and, and you know, I totally forgot about this company and this uh, uh, this stock personally. I, I used to be a big fan and a big patron of Six Flags, having a couple season passes, and every now and then on weekends, I would, you know, cough up the extra um, the extra bucks for the flash pass to cut all the lines, um, which really kind of had me. Uh, a little uh, sentimental about all my trips to the New Jersey and the Maryland uh, Six Flags. But I mean, yeah, there's no other way to look at this as other than kind of investors um, getting excited about the potential of the reopening. Um, year to date, as you mentioned today, they're at an all-time high, you know, 33% increase per share um, in, you know, a little less than two months. So there's no other way you know, to, to paint this other than that it's excitement over reopening because those fourth quarter numbers and for that matter, you know, the fiscal year 20 numbers were pretty, uh, pretty ugly in my mind. So one of the things that's always great to see when you're an investor is when you own shares of a company that has and is smart about exercising pricing power. Do you think Six Flags is a business that that has pricing power? Because there's, and I'm not really, a, a, you know, a theme park person per se, but I could see a scenario where plenty of people say, "I don't care what the price is. I'm dying to go back." I, you know, I took a year off from going to Six Flags. 
Um, and yeah, if the if if they're not as long as they're not outrageous with bumping up the price, I could see that. Again, I could see people. I could see businesses taking advantage of that um, in a smart way to say, "Yeah, we we know it's weird, but we're actually going to bump up prices this year because we think people are going to pay them." Yeah, honestly, that might be a prudent decision by management. You know, granted, they they have to run some analysis in terms of the trade off and how many visitors might be deterred by that and how many might, you know, be totally unaffected by a price change. And I, I think there probably is a, a pretty large cohort. Um, of the you know 33 million people that visited Six Flags in 2019 that are saying okay you know I have no problem coughing up another 10 percent or whatever it might be um, you know to visit the park um, and I think it's similar to restaurants you know restaurants during lockdown you know provided a service fee or you know a takeout fee and and, and that's kind of the nature of uh, of kind of the COVID world we live in everyone understands that businesses especially like Six Flags or um, you know, really struggling to make money. And, and for that matter, in the fourth quarter of 2019, Six Flags wasn't making money. Granted, they had a profit in, in the entire fiscal year 19. But, um, you know, I think that's that price increase is something that patrons will almost expect to this point um, with kind of the, such a strenuous year all businesses have had. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if management does, you know, bump up prices and how that uh, impacts some of their um, visitors on a quarterly basis, especially as they begin to really reemerge and reopen. What's the when you think about your your time at Six Flags? What's a, a ride that you remember fondly? Yeah, there there's a ride in in the New Jersey. So I used to to go to Six Flags Great Adventures in New Jersey, and I was probably you know, eight or nine and, um, you know, would go with my parents or a couple of buddies. And we always saw King Ka. So one of my first years having a, an annual pass was when King Ka opened up. Um, and, you know, I never had the guts to to go on it. So I'm kind of kicking myself now. And maybe if I'm, at, if I'm back in New Jersey in the next couple of years, I'll have to, uh, you know, give it a test drive. But that, that's kind of the one thing where I'm, I always kind of regret I never went on it. And, you know, my mom would always say, oh, it's too many G-forces or something like that. But, you know, I think I'm, I'm, think I'm ready to, uh, to climb that hill and uh, go on King to Ka. You know what? That's why they're going to raise the price because of people like you. Like, <laughs> oh, I just, I, I got to go. And it's like, you can come back on. We're just bumping up the price a little bit. Clay Burning, yeah, really yeah. appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. Have a good one. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.